prosecuting sedition in a divided nation is a challenge as old as America itself. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Prosperity for Central America is based on an economic model on foreign investment and foreign profit, on the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. The guy who really founded that connection between Israel and the evangelicals was Bibi Netanyahu. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand, much too much of a role in this country, and without them knowing what it was doing. There's not going to be a war by Russia to conquer the United States. There's not going to be a war by China to conquer the United States. No country is going to conquer the United States. The United States is destroying itself because of the size of its military. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy, and uh, that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dig dignity of man. America's founders brilliantly created our appropriately treasured First Amendment specifically to protect offensive speech. People's right to say all kinds of mean, nasty things is secured in our Constitution. In recent years, the new concept of hate speech has blurred the line between a person's right to say offensive things and another person's right to be free from what can and does lead to violence against people. During the thankfully past Trump era, much of what the president and his followers expressed publicly caused great alarm and was called treasonous and seditious. For example, you remember Trump's Helsinki summit with his Russian counterpart, some might call him his boss, Vladimir Putin, it prompted former CIA director John Brennan to describe Trump's behavior as, quote, nothing short of treasonous. That's some pretty intense uh, accusations there from John Brennan. The Trumpists called anyone who disagreed with them traitors, and many others recoiled in horror at what the far right said, insisting they were traitors, or at least seditious. But as we've hung in there as a nation of laws, despite recent degrading and disregarding of the rule of law by the past administration, the exact meaning and intent of such terms of derision and accusations of treason against the United States are of extreme importance. Treason is a serious crime, a felony, I believe. To toss out such accusations too easily may have the unintended effect of lessening the perceived seriousness of such allegations of unacceptable behavior. So what is sedition? Is there a clear definition? Is it, as lawyers would say, settled law? Our guest today, William Pruden, has written about this very timely question in an article on History News Network titled, Prosecuting Sedition in a Divided Nation is a Challenge as Old as America. And he is our guest today on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks so much for being with us, uh, Bill. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Bill Pruden points out that America's cultural value on free expression makes conviction of far-right radicals on sedition charges unlikely, end of quote. 
When one thinks of traitors in American history, the name Benedict Arnold certainly tops the list. But even that one's debated. John Brown, the entire Confederacy, Aaron Burr, those involved with Shays and Whiskey Rebellions. But others consider all of them patriotic heroes. As the old saying goes, one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. So when it comes to the lesser crime of sedition, is there a clear definition? How far does the First Amendment go in protecting what some might see as treasonous, or at least seditious? Bill Pruden III is Director of Civic Engagement and an Instructor of History and Social Studies at the Ravenscroft School in Raleigh, North Carolina. He earned a bachelor's in history from Princeton University. Boy, I could never get in there. A JD from Case Western Reserve University and a master's from Wesleyan University and Indiana University. One-time aspirant for public office with two failed candidacies for local office to his credit. Hey, that's a good thing. Thank you for doing that. He also did stints as a legislative assistant to both a state senator and a member of the U.S. House of Representatives. He's written widely on U.S. history and politics, contributing chapters to a number of books, as well as writing op-eds and hundreds of articles for historical encyclopedias and reference works. And I always like to say, I hope people can think with history. It's important to do that. Thanks again, uh, Bill Pruden, for being with us. As you write, with arrests mounting and prosecutors starting to develop their legal strategies to address the January 6th attack on the Capitol, sedition is back in the news. So, a definition of terms is called for right up front. You call sedition the stepchild to treason. Okay, what does that word mean? How is it defined by law? Um, good question, and it's kind of evolved over time. Um, I think the general definition now is a kind of conspiracy aimed at overthrowing the government. Um, and that conspiracy piece is an important part of any prosecutors' um, considerations. Um, it differs from treason. I think you would, um, it would be argued in that treason specifically talks about levying war. I mean, ironically or interestingly, um, treason is about the only crime that is very specifically um, identified and given a definition in the Constitution. Um, where Article 3, Section 3 talks about treason against the United States, so consists only in levying war against them or in adhering to their enemies, um, and et cetera. So it's a, in a sense, just its constitutional um, inclusion puts it at a different level. Um, I think sedition is, as I say, kind of a stepchild, but um, certainly a very, very um, high-level crime, um, literally, as I say, overthrowing the government, usually by force, which I think is part of why it is being seen um, potentially in the context of the January 6th events, where you had that force of breaking into the Capitol um, and the argument of you know overthrowing a government that was in the process of finalizing the last step of the presidential election. So then, see if I got this right. Uh, treason would be encouraging war, against the United States, but sedition could be just uh, calling for and acting on the idea of overthrowing the government. Is that about right? Yeah, right. I, yeah I would say that was, that's how I, I read it. And I, I think also that sedition is a little bit more kind of internal, whereas the sort of levying of war, uh, as it's been seen in the few times, also kind of implies, um, and it's, I think, you know, it's been used in the context 
of of President Trump and John Brennan's quotation that you talked about. I think his, some of his interactions with Russia, who, while mm. we are not formally at war, there is still that the historic Cold War that, while it may have the temperature may have risen a, a little bit, they are certainly still seen as an adversary. <laughs> So then, I mean, Bill Brennan, you know, he doesn't toss such words around lightly. So when, no. when, when, when he's saying that by Trump working with Putin, uh, that could fall under the definition of treason, whereas the people who participated in the January 6th uprising uh, probably would not apply to them. Is that right? Right. Yeah. And I think that's, yeah, and I think that's why as prosecutors are, are looking, it's been sedition that has been tossed out as a possible um, charge for the January 6th rioters as opposed to a treasonous um, charge. That's good to know because a lot of people have just tossed around that word a little yeah, bit. No, there, you know, I mean, treason definitely, as you point out, you know, it's, it's sort of at the top of the list. I mean, right away you think of, of Benedict Arnold. Um, Aaron Burr was involved um, just shortly after leaving the vice presidency um, in a very direct um, trial for treason. Um, presided over by then Chief Justice, Justice John Marshall. So I mean, it's it's it has a very very real <laughs> um, black um, mark on its reputation, and it, it's it's kind of the worst thing you can you can do. I would argue, kind of just in terms of the, the easy colloquial aspects of, of yeah. that. At the same time, as you also note, um, you know, those things have two sides. Um, certainly, the South did not see themselves as being right. as being treasonous, although part of the whole debate over Civil War monuments, et cetera, goes back to, but they were. Um, and it's, a, you know, it's a perspective. I mean, you know, one person's trees, another person's freedom fighter. Um, as King George, um, who was treasonous or who was a terrorist uh, back uh, in 1776, and I think you're going to get an interesting list. <laughs> true. What we would call patriots, our, our yeah, American exactly. founders, he would call treasonous. And obviously yeah. they killed many of us. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> did. And it was considered perfectly legal to do so. Now, exactly. So I think that's part of what you're saying, you know, that thinking with history. Um, yes. The timing and the context is huge. It is huge. And, and the, the January 6th is, you know, will go down in history as yet another day of infamy. And it just it has really shaken sure. things up. And we are not anywhere close to being done with the legal uh, aspects of what happened on January 6th. Uh, oh, for sure. And allegations are of sedition are, to say the least, nothing new. As you say, whether we realize it or not, talk of sedition is but another indication of the divisions that have haunted the distinctive experiment that is the United States since its inception. End of quote. We call our country the United States of America, but when we were about to go to war over those divisions in 1861, Lincoln said we were about forming a more perfect union. He was recognizing that the name of the country, United States of America, as our founders knew, is in fact more aspirational than real. So it hasn't been realized yet. We're tr still trying to form a more perfect union. The, the aspirations are there. Yep. So what in our history leads you to observe that, quote, the legislative enshrinement of sedition has resulted most often in a vehicle for squelching political opposition? I like free speech myself. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, I think, you know, I mean, the, the 
what historians generally point to as the first sedition act in the United States was uh, passed during the uh, presidency of, of John Adams. And by any interpretation, I think it's hard to see it as anything other than trying to squelch the the opposition of the emerging, um, then they call it a Republican Party. It's seen now as the one that fully has the roots to the modern Democratic Party, but parties in America have yeah. ebbed and flowed. Yeah, there, there is no straight line aspect, but um, it's it was a law passed in conjunction with the uh, alien acts that were aimed at reducing uh, the power and the uh, Path to citizenship for um, aliens coming, um, often time more increasingly from from France, which had a greater support for the um, Jeffersonian Republicans, um, mm. and was really aimed at trying to help help keep Adams in office, help squelch that opposition. I mean, there there are two key aspects of the law that make that pretty clear that it was a politically motivated piece of legislation. The first was who was affected by it. Um, it was a crime to criticize the president or Congress, wow. both of whom, interestingly, were controlled by the Federalists. The one person who was exempted from that prohibition, who could be criticized, was the vice president, who at that point was Jefferson, who was gearing up to run against Adams for president. The other piece of the legislation that is of interest in that same vein is that it was set to expire on Inauguration Day, so that if, from a Federalist perspective, and again, it's a Federalist Congress that passes this, and Adam signs it, if, in their worst nightmare, they lose the election, at least beginning with the new administration, they're free to criticize the president. Wow. Interesting, interesting, interesting. The the, uh, the shenanigans that went on then, you know, and people talk yeah, about so. the, the press these days. <laughs> back yeah. in the... I mean, it's an interesting, you know, again, kind of going back to what I said about the timing. Um, you know, one of the things that, that President Trump was was criticized or praised by, depending upon where you're looking at, um, while he was president, was his, you know, um, ignoring, breaking up of, of established norms. Um, you know, this taking a new, trying to drain the swamp, all those types of things. Um, at the point Adams is president, you don't have any norms. I mean, all of it is really uncharted ground. Everything Washington had done had set precedents, but none of them have the kind of history that we have recently had. And I think there was, rightly or wrongly, and we certainly don't look at it quite that way now with the, with the benefit of 200 years, but I think Federalists and Republicans going either way, seeing it on the opposite side, thought that the whole experiment was potentially in jeopardy if these other people with this different view would suddenly ascend to power. Um, and they were working overtime to, um, to prevent it. it. It, and it continues. I mean, the, the, um, I made reference in my, my article to, uh, you know, during, during the, um, final years of the Adams administration, they were prosecuting, um, Republicans, including a Congressman, Matthew Lyon for violating it. I mean, Lyon is a Congressman. He criticized the president. Um, Gee, how many members of Congress would we uh, put in jail <laughs> if that were the, the case today? But, um, you know, they, they made a point of that. Um, meanwhile, when Jefferson gets into office, one of the first things they do in an effort to try to make clear that their own control was to use some actions that had been taken place under that act to try and impeach a Federalist um, or a, a Federalist judge. 
um, in Samuel Chase, the only Supreme Court huh. uh, impeachment trial ever conducted. So, some... so I, I did not know that Samuel Chase had been uh, impeached. He was not convicted. Right, um, right, right. Was, that we know. Most, by most lights, a good thing because the general feeling was that had Chase been convicted, the um, Republicans were going to go after John Marshall next. <laughs> They'd wow. open, been able to open the door. And if you look at Chase and, and John Marshall, I think they're treated very well by our history books these days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. So this the Sedition Act, the Alien Sedition Acts that, that the Federalists created was really intended. I mean, it's, it's like they weren't even pretending to just crush the opposition, right? Yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> Amazing. it's hard to read them any other way, I think, and I... Um, yeah. it's just, I mean, the specifics are so, so tailored. <laughs> and the idea of a, a Republican government with a small R and a, in a democracy, right. uh, boy, it doesn't seem to fit with that. As you were talking, I was reminded of the old phrase, the divine right of Kings, you know, like that they thought that they had the legitimate power and other people who were uh, running against them, uh, they were seditious. They didn't have the legitimacy. That's, yeah, and I think that you know it, it's again their their a their their definition of democracy is yeah. certainly a different one than we now think of um, you know in terms of who is voting and the various yeah. um, property uh, property yes. um, requirements and those kind of things. I think you also need to look at it again in the context of the world at large, which obviously there was not the global interaction and intersection that we have today, but. All of this, a centerpiece issue in the Adams presidency is U.S. relations with Europe. Um, the French Revolution is still there. I mean, the Adams administration has been rebuffed by the by the French in the X Y Z affair, and they, you know, in their view, to the, to the Adams Federalists, France was um, it, it was anarchy, yeah. and that was what they feared. That and yes. and the Jeffersonians supported it enough, at least. To their view, that is this what's going to happen to us if these people get into power? And um, one one can see why. I mean, it, it, there was a lot of blood flowing on the streets of well, Paris. A lot of blood flowing, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And I mean, this wasn't. And again, you kind of look at who these people are. Um, you know, that wasn't why Adams had risked all of his his things. I mean, you know, again, they realized that they were um, and had been arguably treasonous. Yeah. Be Britain had taken a major risk. You know, the, the famous. Ben Franklin quip about we must all hang together or we will certainly hang separately. Right. <laughs> and that was uh, that that was not hang together guys as in unity <laughs> that hanging separately was going to be on the gallows. <laughs> which which now they're they're seeing in France and um the guillotine as opposed to a gallows but nevertheless yeah. um that kind of thing is is a fear and I mean you know Washington to his uh, there's a new book out actually comparatively recently talking about his final days and apparently he went to his grave really wondering if everything he had uh -huh. was, was going to be, you know, was really going to last. I'm um, having some very real doubts, which, again, if you consider, you know, he died December 1799, so you're, all of this that we're talking about, these divisions between Republicans and Federalists are really peaking. This legislation's been passed. They're getting ready for what is going to be a acrimonious 1800 election campaign, um, albeit of a very different style from our modern ones. But, you know, the, 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 it was the United States only in title. <laughs> 
Yeah, for sure. And, uh, uh, it, it, you know, democracy is, is messy. And I had, a politi- I had a political science professor who, who said, uh, who defined politics as the economy of violence. And people were legitimately scared of violence back then. As, yep, yep. And it's no surprise that the terms uh, uh, treason and sedition come up today. For those who may have just tuned in, our guest today on Keeping Democracy Alive is uh, uh, William Pruden, who has written uh, about uh, uh, sedition and treason. His article in uh, History News Network, which I highly recommend, is called Prosecuting Sedition in a Divided Nation is a Challenge as Old as America. And we thought it was something new. Ha! Not hardly. Well, just briefly, I still get confused between federalists and anti-federalists. If we could just cover that ground, you know, so we can uh, continue with the uh, sedition and treason argument. Sure, no, that's that's one of those I deal deal with all the time when I teach U.S. history, and always one kind of trying to sort it out. Um, it's almost a, I mean, in the way historians use it now, it, it's an it it's a chronologically divided term in a sense. Um, they tend to talk about federalists and anti-federalists in the context of the development of the Constitution and the ratification. The, the federalists are the people who want to have the Constitution replace the Articles of Confederation. They want this more okay. centralized government, mm-hmm. taking tremendous power away from the states versus what the Articles had had, um, and really creating an, a national government that is going to potentially have have some real power. Um, and the anti-federalists are the ones who um, oppose that, or the leaders in various of the state um, uh, ratification yeah. conventions. Probably in the pantheon of founding fathers that we tend to refer to, the most prominent um, anti-federalist was probably Patrick Henry, who had had refused to attend the Constitutional Convention itself. He'd been offered a chance by the Virginia um, legislature putting together their their um delegation but he he said he uh, smelled a rat and didn't even want to be involved with it and then led the charge um once they had written the constitution they came back to virginia for um for ratification um and and held things up for a while until they're um but um so there's that and then then you get uh, say that the the um you know the, the anti-federalist phrase per se goes away and is replaced you know as the parties, which nobody wanted to call them that for a while, but as they developed, you right. get instead the Jeffersonian Republicans and the Federalists are the ones, in part because of Hamilton's influence, who was very much an advocate of the stronger federal yes. government with the economy and all, and so they then adopt that phrase that had been associated with this new big government. And Hamilton is back. Lord knows. Yes, Hamilton is back. He is. <laughs> Big time, making a lot of money. And, uh, it is, yes. Everybody, I've seen a number of things. that people wonder, so, okay, now, yeah, envision and, what you might be able to do with another one of the founding fathers. And, and wow. you know, it just, it, this division that we talk about now and people saying, oh, can't we just get No, we can't just get over it. We've been divided ever since the beginning. And... You know, that's one of the things about democracy is you have division and we have opposition. And I kind of like it. That's why I call this show Keeping Democracy Alive. Please tell us, please, about someone I had not heard of, Vermont Congressman Matthew Lyon. And you mentioned his name earlier as it relates to the crime of sedition. Mm -hmm. Um, He was a um, 
as say, a congressman from Vermont. Um, uh, he was originally born in Ireland, like so many of the um, early activists. You had kind of the longer line ones of, you know, of like a Jefferson or a Washington, whose roots were earlier in the in the colonies. But mm-hmm. a lot of the early people are, are are immigrants, which of course is another part of our imagine that heritage, heritage that gets a lot of <laughs> can be Still played yep. many many different ways. Yes, but um, you know, he was a businessman for a while. Then he went into a publishing, um, and then um, under the kind of Republican mantle, he ran for the House of Representatives from Vermont a couple times until he was finally elected in um, 1796, um, at which point he made, um, was very, very, um, it was very opposed to the uh, Adams administration. Um, he actually, people who think of the sedate Congress um and the occasional outpour tend to cite the caning of yes. Charles Sumner as the big highlight, but actually Lyons had a um, fight of his own with a uh, Federalist congressman named Roger Griswold when the two of them were going at it with canes at oh one my. point um, to defend themselves. Lyons pulled a, um, I think it was a to- an iron or for a, a, a um, uh, chim- chimney or uh, yeah, fireplace um, in there, uh-huh. and the two of them are going at it on the floor of the uh, oh house. There's a couple. There's a famous uh, cartoon that gets a lot of currency. Tends to be in about every other textbook. But um, so uh, you know, again, reflective of the the um, the degree of of fervor <laughs> that was a part of it. But he also was um, the first major figure to be. Um, tried and convicted for violating the Sedition Act when he um, had made comments um, counter um, in counter to President Adams. I don't believe he was the one, I think it was a later one, but there was there was a famous um, prosecution off of somebody who um, said that the president was uh, fat, um, ugly, and stupid. Um, most people acknowledge that the first two were true, and Adams himself would, but the stupidity, I think, is very questionable, and the man was, was bright if <laughs> if his politics could be questioned, but um, it was that kind of thing. You say that, and you would bro- broken broken the law under the way oh the Sedition goodness. Act was. So, ah. so Lyons was convicted. Um, Lyons went to um, went to jail, and oh Lyons goodness. became one of the early um, Americans who successfully was reelected while sitting in jail. Oh, my goodness! And eventually, we'll get down to Eugene Debs, who uh, right. got into some trouble uh, for his mm-hmm. alleged sedition and. So that brings us rather directly to uh, the First World War and President Woodrow Wilson. And I will say, the more I read about him, the less I like him. He created the rightfully infamous Sedition Act of 1918. And though in, in 1916 he campaigned against U.S. involvement in the war over there, many leaders of the belligerent countries looked to him to bring peace. He was going to be the peace person. He not only sent hundreds of thousands of our boys to the war as it been winding down. He also did a 180 and cracking down hard on the dissenters against the war who had been his friends before he got elected. Please tell us how he plugged in and used the word sedition to assault free speech and throw many good people in jail. Well, again, I think it's, as I say, it's this is kind of round two of sedition as a Opposition to government, and given the the times, an opposition 
played out more in a verbal sense, although some of the early, um, in addition to Eugene Debs, some of the other people who were um, convicted of sedition at that time were passing out leaflets, arguing against the war, arguing against the draft, those kind of things. And um, the, the government stretched it. Um, yeah. And it, um, in terms of the, an element of it was the effectiveness of it. I mean, you could argue that handing out a leaflet is a, is a, um, you know, an act as opposed to just speech and that whole issue of um, act versus speech and symbolic acts and symbolic speech, those kind of things are still to be determined by the court down the road. But um, it was really, there was, there was again, this concern and with the United States entering a war, unlike any they'd ever done, there was a feeling that we need to be totally supportive of this or who knows what's going to happen, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and you also have a president who, by pretty much all accounts, was pretty thin-skinned. Yes. Well, was not known for... I mean, I mean po- politicians like to be loved. It's inherent <laughs> in the business. Um, True. But um, Wilson was yeah. probably at a higher level than many. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, it's, 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 even just his background, you know, there, there, oh, there, yeah. there is something about an academic um, who stands in front of a, of a classroom and, you know, especially in the old days where teaching was no Sander, but you stood up there and you dispensed knowledge and everybody else is sort of taking it all in. Um, uh-huh. And he, he, even his earlier career um, in, in academia, he had, yes. had, um, had some, some uh, setbacks in, the, in academic politics as president at Princeton. Oh, yeah. um, yes. And, um, but, and, 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 and as, as he noted as someone who wanted to go into politics, as, as I, we noted earlier and, Ended up going into you know the school world. One of my all-time favorite quotes is one that Wilson is reported to have said about six months into his governorship, after he had already accomplished a good bit as a quintessential uh, progressive governor. But he was asked by a reporter how he liked uh, politics, and he was said to have responded, "Compared to academic politicians, these guys are amateurs." Um, oh, wow! So <laughs> Ooh, I didn't know it was that cutthroat. My goodness! Yes, yeah, it can be. <laughs> Somebody once said that academic politics are so fierce because the stakes are so low, but I'm not sure <laughs> how that goes either. But it's, it's you know, it's, it's, it's at the same time, um, you know, you're dealing with a lot of very independent people. And um, Wilson and, had, had that, and so you suddenly find yourself president of the United States. Also, I think probably, you know, it, nobody likes to be reminded that they were wrong, although Wilson had enough forethought to realize. He, he from numerous things I've read, did not like the Democratic Party's deter- the decision to ha- run him on the slogan, he kept us out of war. No, no he kidding. Had enough foresight oh, to God. think that I'm not sure I can control this and it could, you know, it could go a different way. I mean, again, we all know, um, sure you know, did. elections run on a shorter term kind of thing and you do what you can at that point. I mean, you know. So he, um, a lot of people. LBJ promised not to send anybody uh, <laughs> to fight. <laughs> and a lot of people um, suffered because of his thin skin. He had to be right. Yeah. And he had his Creel Commission and uh, yeah. you know, people who had to defend this uh, high and mighty. Um, I could think of a few words. But his attack, <laughs> his attack on dissent was a terrible period in American history. Has that string of government repression under the sedition laws been picked up? Is it still on the books? I mean, is it still there? And how how did it... It is still there. It's been revised. Um, 
the, the, the specifics of that time are there, but they've been pretty much uh-huh. put to bed. Um, they've been revised with some other things in part, just circumstances have also changed. I mean, you know, one of the things, especially on things like freedom of speech and, and um, the like, have been altered so much in both the perceptions and the courts are trying to keep up mm. by the changing nature of communication. I mean, civil liberties in general, in many respects, have. Um, I was just talking about this with my government class recently as we were talking about the you know, Fourth Amendment search and seizure. Um, mm. You know, you look at it when they wrote it back in the Bill of Rights, and it's someone coming into your house and going through right. all of your stuff. Now it's getting into your cell phones, yes. it's GPSs, it's... Uh, Computers, um, the range of of things that um, just off the top of our head we think of, not to mention the the other routes you can go. Um, yeah, and I it's somewhat aside the the fact that if I look if I'm looking at something or my wife is looking at something on the internet, I get all these advertisements from competitors. It's, yep. it's like what, they're looking at all my stuff. Wow. I don't. I don't think our founders and the Fourth Amendment. Obviously, there was. Uh, you know, that was it. Breaking into people's houses. But uh, what? You know, it's it's changing, and yet we have traditions that we like to keep. We like uh, democracy in general. And we like uh, freedom, and it's tough to pin sedition on anybody, really, because we do value freedom of speech. And we mentioned right. Eugene Debs. His place in history, to me, it seems to be improving with each passing year. He ran for president on the Socialist Party ticket and did quite well. Back yep. in a time when socialism was not a scary word, how did the sedition laws affect the political fortunes of Eugene Debs at the time? Debs ran for president frequently. He, he had started back on the early part of the um, 20th century. He, he had his his high water mark was actually the um, the year that that Wilson got elected. You had um, really, in many respects, four credible candidates. Um, mm-hmm. You had Wilson, who ultimately won. You had uh, Theodore Roosevelt um, coming back as a comeback that after unsuccessful pursuit of the party nomination again um, ran as a as a progressive. Um, you had. William Howard Taft as the Republican, and then Debs ran as a as a socialist candidate and got um, almost a million votes. I think it was six percent was a total. I mean, Wilson won with a very small plurality. I think yes. the only person who won less was um, was Lincoln mm. in an oh. election that he was not even on all the ballots. So, it made, yeah, really, <laughs> or that was at the height of the progressive movement when there was just an awful lot of of call for and hunger for change, and it was being viewed. And again, nineteen twelve is before. We get the Russian Revolution, which I think I would argue is what kind of changes the whole mindset on that, on the word socialist. And that also colors um, a piece, too, as far as the perceptions of of even the Sedition Acts. I mean, the, the, the idea of Russia with its revolution right at the same time that things are heating up in World War I um, also adds another concern and is going to manifest itself in the aftermath of the war in the early 20s with the, the post-World War One Red Scare, which yes. also plays into the, the whole sedition issue. Um, and, and the Justice Department, fully supported by an, an admittedly ailing Wilson, um, which actually gave the Attorney General more um, autonomy, um, mm. you know, looking to, to round up 
radicals who are seen as a as a threat. Yeah, people with uh, hyphenated German last names, and it reminds me of 1941 yep. with the uh, people with Japanese names, and they yep. were considered uh, by some seditious, and a lot of people got hurt really badly by that. It was a thing that a lot of people just fell, you know, fell by the wayside. It was only there were a very few. It's one of the chapters of his career that. People tend to forget, I think in general, historians tend to see Charles Evans Hughes as one of the great kind of statesmen and achievers in American history, but all very much establishment-oriented, a progressive governor, two stints on the Supreme Court, Secretary of State, loses to Wilson. But he was one of the few major figures who spoke out against the early excesses of the 20s um, and the Red Scare and, and that kind of thing. Oh, interesting. Um, somebody like Hughes had the stature to be able to do it and emerge on this case, but there were other people who could have but didn't. So it's a- For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about democracy and how the word sedition can sort of be a, a threat to democracy, really. I mean, it's a serious crime, but guest today is uh, William Pruden, who's written, he wrote an article in HNN, Prosecuting Sedition in a Divided Nation is a Challenge as Old as America. And Charles Evan Hughes was on the Supreme Court, and sedition-based prosecutions did go up there. And two of often uh, thought of greatest Supreme Court justices, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. and Louis Brandeis, descended from the majority opinion relative to sedition. What was... They're really the first two that that lay out a standard for what is legitimate speech. Again, we're talking, you know, roughly 1920, um, given the end of the war. And yet 130 years after the start of it, the Bill of Rights had really kind of lay fallow um, and had not really been much of of an issue. And it's only there that we start to get it that the whole next decade, really, between what um, Holmes and Brandeis are doing and the court um, is starting to really look at it. They also are going to begin to get for the first time. Hughes, actually, um, as Chief Justice later, is going to write the first opinion that um, applies the First Amendment to the states. Um, and so expands it significantly. Mm. Um, so free speech did become clarified in the early uh, 1920s, is that right? And, and yes, it's yeah. interesting. Get, the, I mean, the famous one is the kind of the first starting point is Holmes' uh, clear and present danger test, as they. Oh, it, yes. It, you know, it, it's all right, it may not sound good, it may sound threatening, but, you know, the guy, the person spouting these words on the proverbial corner um, soapbox, is he presenting a clear and present danger or is he just spouting off? You know, are people just walking by going, oh, that's nice? Or is he in the position to um, make something happen? And I think that's a piece that has been talked about in the context of the um, rally before the Capitol um, insurrection that the range of speakers, including the president, Mm -hmm. were up there and and I think that the, the Democrats, certainly in their presentation at the impeachment, made that case, the video they showed at the beginning in terms of the the um, speeches, especially by the president, obviously, since they were looking to impeach him. And then the subsequent action was trying to make that connection between those speeches were leading to a clear and present danger. And that is speech that the Supreme Court has not has made clear is not sanctioned by the First Amendment, as people have often said, you know, the, the First Amendment is not, there's never been a majority of the court that has taken it absolutely. Hugo Black used to famously pull out his his pocket-sized uh, 
of the Constitution and say it says Congress says no law and no law is no law, but there has never been a majority that has accepted that interpretation. So it, it remains still yet to do. I mean, we're still uh, forming a more perfect union, as others yep. have said, that uh, it's unclear as to the limits of free speech. I mean, I always reduced it to uh, your right to throw a punch ends where my nose begins. And right. There's that one. There's the, And that's sort of the uh, the, the fighting words um, right. doctrine is a piece of that. Exactly. And what is free, you know, what is freedom? What is uh, okay? And we have January 6th, you know, since certainly since the January 6th attack on the Capitol, the concept of sedition has reappeared on the public's radar. I don't think it was there much before. There's interest in the possibility of some rioters being charged with sedition. As you say, those discussions should remind us of the complicated nature of the concept and the law, and that the 1988 Fort Smith, Arkansas case is a cautionary tale for those who believe that sedition is the way to proceed against those January 6th terrorists, ends of quote. Now, that's not all that long ago, quite frankly, but I don't have any memory of that. And I imagine most listeners are in the same boat. Tell us, please, about that yeah. case, 1988, and how it may relate to January 6th. Well, it was a, it was a, a case where um, the government charged um, 12, I think it was 12 defendants, uh, or 12, there was a 13th who was kind of separated at, at one point as trials will occasionally do. Um, and um, they were accused of of plotting, um, conspiring, and that's a, that's a key aspect of sedition that it tends to be a conspiracy, which can add another dimension of challenge to to prove um, of to overthrow um, a part of a part of the federal government. It wasn't a, it wasn't a total government um, by any stretch, but there was a piece in out in the uh, Arkansas um, area that they were looking to um, create this network that would have. Um, Again, it doesn't have to be a total overthrow. It just has to kind of stop operations, and that was kind of what they were doing. Um, the whole case sort of came apart in part because it was so broad-based. I mean, at the same time that there was sedition charges against the defendants, there were also almost a 100 other individual charges that were a piece of it, um, everything from bank fraud in an effort to try that they had allegedly um, perpetrated in an effort to try to finance the, the whole effort. Um, there were um, charges of murder um, on mm. a couple of officials who had gotten in the way. Um, and it, it, that one was a mix, and it, it, but it also just shows the difficulties. I mean, three, of the, um, three or four of the um, accused were, in fact, in jail at the time of the trial for convictions on previous range of of, of arguably any government activities. Um, so it was, a, it was a wide range. And then they also had the issues of, as is often a case of um, some questions, one of the, one of the main um, witnesses had originally been involved and turned, and there were some questions about his reliability, and it just kind of imploded in the, um, in the prosecutor's um, hands. You also had an issue of they were a group that had some very real, um, uh, what we now kind of refer to, I guess, the religious right, their Christian rights. And so their um, attorneys argued that this was a governmental intrusion on uh. their um, religious rights, um, which I think is always a potential, as we talked about, as you mentioned at the very beginning, the whole idea of this 
cherished right of no free speech and what have you. And it's, um, you gotta, in anytime you're challenging that in the United States, you're going to have to really make the case because the, the sort of the default among Americans is, you know, I can say that it's my freedom. Right. Okay, I know as a, as a, as a teacher, I'm always, one of the first things I always do with my kids and I teach high school, um, you know, for the most part is to have them distinguish that, that reflex that they had as kids. They get this, you know, they're told about you have freedom of speech. And I'm always like, that is a freedom from government intrusion. If your parents tell you to shut up, you don't have constitutional protection. <laughs> you can't tell them, you can't say that I have freedom of speech. Um, and, but there is, there's that default. You know, I can say what I want, and it has taken the Supreme Court to, to narrow it. And, and it, like anything, it, it takes a broader and more nuanced to understand where it's government, where it's personal, those kind of things. And I think that's, you know, it would, it, it, when we get in the middle of a big brouhaha like this, um, nuance takes a way back seat as we're trying to figure out what's happening. Well, and, you know, there are those people, myself included, who see there's a very, very big move, and you talk about the religious right, uh, who are for religious nationalism, which to me, I think, is a real threat to America, to our Republican form of government, to our democracy, to have, you know, a religious nationalism, and there's a lot of money there. Are they? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of powerful people in that, uh, and, you know, Trump was part of that. Are they... Uh, seditious? I don't know. I mean, can you bring a case against them? Maybe. I no, I think that's true. I think it's it's, it's emerging. Um, you know, the concern with some recent appointments, but it's emerging now as a as kind of a, a different way to look at the law and some of the court's interpretations through the religious thing. I mean, the, you know, in terms of some of the the efforts to um, attack various state governors' efforts to. Um, you know, to um, fight the the COVID, um, a lot of them have right. impacted attendance at things like churches. But the most successful um, cases against that that have forced some of the governors to back off have been religious based ones yes. operating on the First Amendment. Yes, um, but at the same time, you look at some of the the people that are involved there, and there is very much some parallels with that. I mean, you know, Michigan has been a, a real battleground on that, and they have had some very active. A religious rights-based opposition, but also some very um, terrorists about all you can think when they're making um, plans yeah. to potentially kidnap the governor. Not to mention sure. attacking um, and almost occupying the uh, the state house yeah. at one point last summer with guns. Yes, indeed. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, the the ability to. Uh, uh, disagree and people now some people say oh religious freedom when what they call religious freedom is religious oppression of everybody else so sedition i mean these these meanings are are very uh, significant and many lately have wondered about the previously unthinkable thought that our president himself may have committed either sedition or treason the us treasury on april 15th very recently came out with a report that said Trump may be vulnerable to prosecution because they confirmed yep. he shared strategy and polling data with the Russians in 2016. And I think we all remember uh, when he said this. Russia, if you're listening, 
I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. I think you will probably be rewarded mightily by our press. The law states that it is illegal for any person to solicit, accept, or receive anything of value from a foreign government in an election. That's pretty clear. And the convictions under the Sedition Act carry tough penalties, up to 20 years in jail. Trump and his campaign broke many laws in 2016. A candidate that accepts anything worth more than $2,000 is committing a misdemeanor, and it's a felony to accept anything valued at more than $25,000. The Treasury Department report notes that Russia spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on Facebook and Twitter uh, uh, ads to help Trump in that election. The missing piece to the Trump-Russia puzzle has always been how the Russians knew where to target their efforts to help Trump. The Russians knew which voters to target because Trump told them. The Trump campaign was a joint effort by Trump and Russia to cheat and to win an election. The truth is out. It appears to be a solid case. Is there anything stopping Trump from being prosecuted. I mean, this would be a big deal. What are, what are your thoughts? Oh, it, it would be a big deal for sure. Um, you know, it's 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 hard to to make the absolute connection is where it's going to be hard. I mean, I think you know the, the American politicians since we've mm-hmm. had the changes in campaign finance laws of what well, I guess we're talking twenty years now, but where you've been able to have the independent um, political action committees and the um, spending so long as they don't coordinate with the campaigns um, has been allowed and you know, the spending is significantly greater. Um, and it's, you know, they've been able to, to, to really alter the whole dynamic and yet um, do it in a way that makes the absolute connection very, very difficult to prove. Uh, you know, the perceptions there, people see it. I mean, you go back and you talk about the, the 1988 campaign and George Bush and Willie Horton. Um, the Willie Horton ad, the actual ones right. that showed Willie Horton, were not Bush campaign ads. They were an outside group. Right. Now, everybody associates with They clearly were aimed at electing George Bush um, and, you know, minimizing the stature of, of Governor Dukakis, but they were technically independent ads. And I think you have the same kind of potential. It's going it's a tough road to hoe. I mean, if there's one thing that it appears, I mean, maybe we're getting closer to, to being able to break through it, but over the course of his career, um, president Trump, um, or in businessman Trump, but otherwise has shown a pretty good facility to, keep one step away. Uh, Michael Cohen yeah. talked about, you know, the number of times that he ran interference for him. So, and, you know, Cohen's now <laughs> serving time and, um, Trump is not, <laughs> Trump is not <laughs> exactly. I think that's, you know, it, it's, you know, some the critics of, of the, uh, former president have, have likened it on many occasions to the once removal of, uh, you know, once removed status of, of, organized crime um you know the dons don't do it they somebody else does um right and it's it's very a lot of similarities a lot of similarities yes indeed the crime family and some of the laws too are unfortunately written you know you were talking about the the limit misdemeanor of of 
more than $2,000 because that's the, the law limits that excess. Well, you know, if you pay it back, you pay a little bit of a fine. I mean, the New York Times reported it within the last month of a scam that the Trump campaign was doing that people were oh, yeah. making an initial um, contribution, but there was a box they were supposed to change that said yeah. it was not recurring. Right. But, you know, it's like so many things, you know, deep in the fine print. So as a result, these contributions were continuing to flow to a degree that they were well over the, the limit. And the campaign ultimately has been paying them back if people saw it. But at the same time, it created a campaign that was having some money trouble with a basically um, free uh, loan at the time when they needed the money. And then they dealt with it on the backside. <laughs> It's, 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 one could say it's kind of theft, but you know, that it was in the fine line. People had the obligation to read the fine print and the prosecution of many defendants in the January 6th uprising. And there are a lot of defendants is looking into whether or not Donald Trump may be criminally culpable. I wonder what kind of credible evidence there might be. I mean, given the fact that, you know, the Don uh, structure, you know, other people get thrown under the bus, not not the top guy. What kind of credible evidence yeah. might there be that some of these people could say? Well, that's, that's, that's a hard thing to say because I think a lot of it, you know, from what we're – a lot of it depends on who's responding to you from everything that they're talking about now. And there was the recent um, – article earlier in the week or late last week about the uh, Don, what was it, DonWin.com um, that was um, recruiting people to come to um, to Washington for the, the rally right. um, that morphed into the into the insurrection, but uh, you know, a lot of a lot of communication, a lot of coordination, but doesn't appear to go directly back to the to the White House, and then you get into a question of of people's state of mind. That's hard to prove. I mean, you, know, you oh, had a lot yeah. of people talking about how they felt like it was their commander in chief telling them right. they should do this. Um, but again, you know, you, you get into language, and language is hard to to prove. And the same challenges you have with things like hate crime. And you know, when when right. the president says we will fight, what exactly does that mean? Um, you right. know. Right. Um, and when he, when he disparaged yeah. people of color coming across the border, is that hate? I right. One thing that worries right. me I mean, yeah. is yeah. if there's, depending on how the charges against the January 6th crowd go, I wonder if they, you know, get off or whatever, if the judgments may embolden groups like Oath Keepers and QAnon and Proud Boys and stuff like that. What are your expectations on that? I, I think that's a very real possibility, which is part of why, um, in my gut, and I say this as someone who has a law degree but turned to teaching right away, so I do not have any experience practicing, but part of the reason I would be loath to pursue some of these cases as sedition, which I think is a more difficult charge to prove, uh-huh. rather than go with some of the more direct ones, which for whatever reasons, vanity, stupidity, or what have you, they have all but admitted to by, you know, taking p- selfies and posting them on their own Instagram <laughs> accounts and what have you. It's like, yeah. here, here it is. Um, you know, those are easier. Might the end product, you know, the end sentence be less? Right. Yes. But I think to, in fact, show that the government is willing to pursue them to the degree that they are going to spend time in jail is going to send a message that, and, and maybe a more guaranteed message than taking a chance on the big enchilada, so to speak, um, of mm. a full-scale sedition 
conviction, which would have, I mean, major, major um, years. Um, but at the same time, if it, if you lose, it doesn't bolden them. I, mean, I think, you know, one of the questions as historians are going to ask, um, looking back, and we've seen some of it, but obviously with each passing year, you get a better historical perspective, was the impact of, of Trump defeating the first impeachment effort. Um, there was concern about it. You know, I mean, you get somebody like Susan Collins, I mean, classic, yeah. and I would think she would rule it, but she's, you know, after they did it and, you know, she, she voted not to, not to convict, obviously, um, Senator Romney was the only one who did in the first go around, but she said, you know, I think he's learned his lesson. Well, I think you can argue based on what happened over the next year that, that <laughs> no. he didn't. No, clearly not. Um, wasn't enough to get her to vote the second time either, but it's still, I think, you know, the, but with the groups that, that are, are out there, I think that is, is a definitely a, a concern. Well, your essay ends this way, for better or worse, as it has for literally hundreds of years, the specter of sedition looms over the American populace. Its very existence and its potential power a reflection of the divisions from which its initial, original enactment sprung and which its current contemplated use all too clearly reflect. But it may not be the best way to solve the problem. Well, what is a better way? <laughs> well, as I say, on the, on the legal side... I think maybe lesser charges that will in fact send a message if they're putting people behind bars. Mm -hmm. The other pieces that somehow, and I don't, you know, some of it's reaching across the aisle, but somehow we got to get back to, in a sense, what government's about. Um, I think we've, I think we've lost a bunch, a lot of that. I yeah. mean, we talk, you know, democracy is about creating. It's, it's a way for people to express their views and their thoughts to, to, again, create that more perfect union, um, but a government that's supposed to serve people. And I think we've, I think we've, I think we've moved away from some of that when I sort of think back yeah. to the, the, the when, when I used to think I wanted to go into politics for a career and a couple losses will kind of change that on you and you find other ways to manifest it as a teacher and all, but it's, it's, you know, it's become so much more agenda driven. I think it's become, mm. you know, the, the idea of, I mean, I personally think that every election is a form of a term limit. But on the Absolutely. other hand, when people are making careers of politics, they have a different perspective on it. Um, I, you know, there are a number of people who, I mean, at the risk of singling him out, um, somebody like Senator Lindsey Graham is, I think, the embodiment of sort of where career politics can go now. You look at his statements over the last five years, going back to mm. the original campaign and the kinds of things he said about candidate Trump and the President Trump and his morphing of that. And at one point, Graham himself admitted, you know, it's politics and anybody who doesn't put winning first is in the wrong line of work. Well, <laughs> I don't know that, I don't know that that has always been the case. I think there was an element of ideological oh, yeah. element, or, or or at least to the degree, I mean, to the degree that the winning um, was a major motivating force, it resulted in some other other positives. I mean, there's a case to be made. There's been, you know, it, it's centerpiece to a lot of the of the biographical work on James Madison that Madison had originally opposed the Bill of Rights. He his view of the Constitution was if it's not in there, it can't be done. And so we don't have to worry about, you know, the Constitution says nothing about the government infringing on your freedom of speech. So we don't need to put something extra in that says no. Wow. But in running for the House after he was originally blocked from being in the Senate by Patrick Henry, to go back to that early ratification, federalist, anti-federalist thing. But, 
Madison realized that if he was going to get uh, successfully elected to the House and he was running against James Monroe in Virginia, he had to agree that he would, if elected, work to put in a Bill of Rights. It was clear that Virginia, I mean, they had narrowly ratified the Constitution, and part of it was based on, we'll ratify it, but there's going to need to be some protections put in. Well, there's a lot of work um, in keeping democracy alive. We've come to the end is. of the show. Thank you so much. Very, very interesting. Uh, uh, my you, pleasure. You, your work was on uh, History News Network, and uh, thank you for, for teaching, and uh, you're doing a lot for the kids, I'm sure. We need a future yeah. generation dedicated to democracy. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Right. Look it up.